By this your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the Word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in the stead by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.
face shone while he talked with them. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near. And he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out, and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The basis for our meditation today uh, is our intro at text. The Transfiguration is a mountaintop experience, both physically and figuratively. Here, for a brief moment, the Son of God pulls back the veil and gives his three disciples a glimpse of his glory. Here we see an enfleshed deity. Here we see an immortal, omnipotent, and omnipresent man. God is man, so that he might deliver man from all his transgressions. The glory of the transfiguration intimates the glory which await all those who believe in Jesus, as the presence of both Moses and Elijah attests. Jesus' theophanies, or his divine appearances, are bright and they are intense. Today in our readings in Exodus, we heard about how the face of Moses showed, and yet that is a derived glory. That is a glory that he reflects as a mirror might reflect the sun. But also in Exodus, we heard about the burning bush, which was not consumed by fire. In this bright and fiery way, the Son of God manifested himself to Moses in order to send him on a mission of redemption to those who were shackled in Egypt's house of bondage. The first part of the intro for today comes from Psalm 77, and it too speaks of the sun's luminous presence. The lightnings lit up the world, the earth trembled and shook. This entire passage seems to be an elaborate picture of the mighty phenomenon preceding and accompanying the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. There, all the powers of nature were being used in the service of the one true God, in the revelation of his incomparable majesty. We hear about these manifestations and the use of nature in Exodus 20. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings and lightning flashes the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood afar off. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the Old Testament, his arrival was evidenced by great earthquakes, lightning, and fire. In the Transfiguration, we see the undimmed eternal light of glory which shone from Jesus' face a light which is brighter than any lightning flash. And on the last day, when Christ returns to judge both the living and the dead, he will be as visible as a flash of lightning, as he says in his gospel. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now the next verses in the intro had come from a different psalm, they come from Psalm 84. This psalm was written during David's persecution, when he was being persecuted by his son Absalom. And the poet, the psalmist who wrote this psalm, was one of the Korak Levites who followed his exiled king into the wilderness, and he now prays for David, the Lord's anointed. And he longs to once again stand among the tabernacles, the tents of the Lord's house in Zion. And even though it was Solomon who built the temple, David also had erected a splendid tent on Mount Zion, 
which harbored the Ark of the Covenant, as 2 Samuel 6 says. So they brought the Ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. It is this pre-temple site for which the psalmist longs. And look at the longing, look at the, the great desire to be in God's house that we see in this psalm. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. Why? Why is God's tabernacle or tent lovely? And even though it probably surpassed the beauty of the old desert tab tabernacle at Gibeon, David didn't think much of this tent. He didn't think it was a worthy place of worship. In fact, in 2 Samuel 7, he says, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. So the question is this, what makes God's tabernacle lovely? Why is this man, this Levite, so homesick for the courts of the Lord? The tabernacle and then the temple were the places where God had put his name. That's what makes them lovely. This was the only place on earth where God, in his grace and mercy, would receive their sacrifices and forgive their sins. This is the reason why the tabernacles of the Lord are so lovely to the psalmist. You see, it is true what people say. God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. But God is not everywhere for you. I mean, think about that. God is, if he's everywhere, then that means that God is in the tornado. That means God is in the hurricane. That, mean God, that means God is in disease, in plague, in fire. But he's not in those places for you. Your sins are not forgiven by God being in nature, which is now red and tooth and claw because of sin. God does not come to give you his gifts in the fishing boat. This is true in the Old Testament, too. Read the Old Testament very carefully. Even though the patriarchs wandered to and fro, up and down the land of Israel, they only built altars and they only sacrificed where God appeared to them, where he spoke the gospel to them. In the Sinaitic Covenant, the tabernacle, and then the temple were the only places where God was for you. In fact, the sacrifices in other places were great and grave and terrible sins. As Leviticus 26 says, when God says this about other high places, he says, I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. And this is why Peter wanted to set up new tabernacles, new tents, new booths for the dwelling of the Lord and for his saints. Peter believed that this new holy mountain would be the new Zion, the new place where God had set his name. He desired at once to set up three tabernacles, one for Christ, one for Moses, one for Elijah, so that way they might continue there in glory forever. 
The underlying thought may have been that it would be so much more pleasant to stay here where the glory of heaven had been brought down to them. But Peter was wrong. The dispensation of the New Testament is different than the dispensation of Sinai. Rather than God dwelling in a tabernacle made of silk and thread and wooden beams, or in a temple erected with stone or gold or cedar wood, the Lord's Christ would dwell in a tabernacle made without hands. And this tabernacle was his human body, which was crafted not by the will or by the desire of man, but by the Holy Spirit of God. We see that Jesus proclaims that his body is the new temple in Luke 2, or in John 2. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And it says here that he was speaking of the temple of his body. And so if we want to meet God in the only place where he is for us, then we must be where Jesus Christ is. And where is Jesus Christ? Sure, by the virtue of his divinity, he is everywhere. He is in the sunshine, the rain, and the flowers, as much as he is in darkness, the storm, and the ravenous wolf. But he's not in those places to forgive your sins. He is not in these places to give you his grace, or to feed you with his body and his blood. So where is Jesus for us? He is where he promised to be. For where two or three are gathered together in my name... I am there in the midst of them. This speaks of the church, the communion or the fellowship of all who believe in Jesus. Where two or three are gathered together in Jesus' name, that is, when two or three gather to hear Christ preaching, just like the Father commanded us when he said, Hear him. When we are here to receive his gifts, when we are here to respond with praise and thanksgiving, then there is Christ. There Christ is in all of his grace and mercy. In fact, Christ in the previous verses endows the church with a comforting power, with an awesome authority. The entire congregation has the power to bind and to loose, to forgive the sins of penitent sinners and to retain the sins of the impenitent as long as they do not repent. If this power is exercised in accordance with Christ's injunction and order, this sentence is valid before God in heaven. Every local congregation, even the smallest and the poorest, has this peculiar church power. But it must never be forgotten that this power is given for edification, for the building up. It is not given for destruction. This power is intended to be a wonderful means for gaining poor sinners and for comforting the weak and the poor in spirit. This verse also comforts us in regard to the question of numbers. People lionize the old days, lamenting that there are no longer 300 people in church on a given Sunday. Often a person hears these terrible words, that that church is dying, dying. What does that even mean? If God is true, if Jesus is right, then even the smallest and poorest congregation, made up of two or three, has the full Jesus with all of his grace. 
How can you say that that congregation is dying? If Christ is there, then that congregation is living. It is active. It has the authority to bind and loose sins. How is that dying? That's not dying. The congregations which are dying are the ones that are bursting at the seams, but bereft of God's word. The congregations which are dying are the ones who have jettisoned repentance and faith and opt for an inclusive, tolerant environment which denies God's very clear words. A congregation is sick and it is close to death when apathy reigns, when no one wants to read or hear the word of God, and when teaching in the home, in the school, and in the church has stagnated and gone silent. If the congregation has Jesus, then they're never dying. It is when we gather together in his name, that is, to hear his word, to be baptized, and to receive the Lord's Supper, that then we also become temples of the Holy Spirit. St. Paul says to us, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your body is important. Both your body and your soul were redeemed by Christ. Christ has sanctified, made holy not only your soul, but also your body. And so it does matter what you do with your body, because sexual immorality, in all of its dastardly forms, is a peculiar sin, really the only sin, St. Paul says, that is against your body. Because you are redeemed, bought back. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you received in baptism, and you receive every time you listen to the word and receive the Lord's Supper. There's a great little children's hymn that expresses this point beautifully. It says, There is within this heart of mine a little church with sacred shrine and stained forever with the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. But that isn't all. We're all not just little temples isolated from one another. No, we are being built into one house for God. St. Peter, who did not understand on the Mount of Transfiguration, writes these beautiful words to us. He says, Coming to Jesus as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In the small catechism we learned, in this Christian church, he daily and richly forgives me all my sins and the sins of all believers. And this is the principal benefit of the church, that the church is a medium of God's grace and mercy. But the scripture passage written by Peter teaches us that the church also has other, another point. The church is a gift. 
The church is a gift because we, a solitary single stones, are being brought into fellowship with one another. A single stone is not a house, but stones mortared together support one another and soar to the heavens for the honor of Christ Jesus. Christians do not go at it alone. Christians laugh when fellow parishioners laugh. Christians weep when fellow parishioners weep. The church is not just some add-on. It's not just some afterthought to my relationship with Jesus. I mean, think of how silly it is if we continue with this illustration. How silly would it be if a rock said to the mason, I love you, mason, but I don't want to have anything to do with your building. Those other rocks are malformed and they're ugly. I'm quartz, so how can I be by shale? Those other rocks are hypocrites. They say that they're gold when they're really just iron pyrite. But if I belong to Christ, then I belong to the church, and the church belongs to me, all of her imperfections and all of her warts. Our text ends with this. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. We are blessed. We are the blessed ones mentioned in this text. Because we are still in Jesus' house. We have the sure prophetic word, which brings us Jesus, the true temple. And he comes with all of his love and with all of his kindness. We have the Lord's Supper, where we eat Jesus' body and blood for our forgiveness. We're given the Holy Spirit through these means so that we might be built up into God's house. Here, the many are made one. The, po- the political and economically diverse are united for one common purpose and in one common faith and in one baptism. We truly are the blessed ones. Amen. May the peace of God which passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.